to The Weird. I am Dan Lejoie. And I'm Riley Stewart. And welcome to another episode where we tackle, explore, discuss some of the strange, some of the unexplained, some of the downright weird happenings out there in the world yeah we're going to take you on a journey each week we are going to focus on one story it bounces back and forth between dan and i i started off week one with the mary celeste and now this is dan's week to to take us deep into the world of mysterious goings on and uh and this week i thought we would uh, tackle something a little bit different uh from uh, the genuinely uh, spooky and scary story that you shared with everyone last week the mary celeste and uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about something known as the Highgate Vampire. I have never heard of the Highgate Vampire. I, I've, I've heard a lot of vampire legends, but not the Highgate Vampire. Right. So I'm going to just start off by saying I knew I wanted to talk about vampires. I've always been intrigued by vampires at a very young age. I read Bram Stoker by young age. I was four. You shouldn't read shit like that when you're four. I <laughs> I'm joking. I was waiting for you to jump in. I read it maybe when I was 12. Okay, that's a suitable age. I think so. And then studied it again in university. I thought I loved the fact that it wasn't a story just made up on a whim, that it's based in folklore. And what's fascinating about vampirism is that it's a story that transcends many different cultures and societies that have sort of tales of people who rise from the dead and generally will suck your blood or turn you into one of them. Do you know one of those universal myths is the myth of the dragon? Many, many cultures have this image of a beast like the dragon, that, and these cultures were unconnected, yet they all share a very similar vision of this flying creature that breathes flame and is very large and scaly. So let that unsettle your dreams. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned dragons because the person who made all of this uh, so popular is, of course, Vlad uh, the Impaler or Vlad Tepes or Vlad Dracul or Dracula, who is an actual living, breathing Transylvanian uh, Valachian aristocrat who lived in the 1400s. If you remember the Bram Stoker film as well, you'll see... Uh, his living life depicted in that, at the beginning of that movie, where they sort of explain his origins. It's all true. He actually did fight the Ottomans. He was famous for impaling the soldiers that he defeated, sometimes even impaling his own people if they crossed a line. Apparently he enjoyed watching people being uh, tortured, would sometimes dine in these fields where people were impaled. Uh, that character that person then inspired obviously the bram stoker story although bram stoker would say otherwise um but it was from that but that's not what i want to talk about tonight because that's fiction you mean him being a vampire is fiction but he did exist correct i remember um seeing drawings of him and i was always taken by the fact that he had a very trim beard right if you ever see the images of vlad the impaler he's got an incredibly well-maintained beard he has a, 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 a very distinct features. He's very pointy nose, very well-groomed, long mustache, ruby lips. He is a creepy guy to look at. Probably was a little bit on the uh, Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, sort of sociopathic scale, but probably not a supernatural vampire. Can I tell you a funny story really quick? 
No. So my first introduction to the vampire myth was as a child, and my grandmother was a terrible babysitter because she would just put me in front of the TV and then wander off. And so one day she put me in front of the TV and I watched a movie called Dracula versus Billy the Kid. Oh my god! I, I'm not kidding. Like the cheesiest movie, but I was maybe five, and it introduced me to to the vampire myth. That's the first time I'd been exposed to it, and I was so fucking freaked out that I slept with a crucifix next to me in bed for a good week, probably until my parents finally talked me out of it. I was traumatized. But you became a devout Christian as a result of it. Did you know Prince Charles is related to Vlad the Impaler? Dear listener, I should point out the voice you're hearing is that of our intrepid producer, Miss Bonnie Robinson. Hello, Bonnie. Hi. Good to be here. Yeah, we forgot to introduce you. We're terrible friends. That's okay. I mean, I should have told you to produce, uh, to introduce me because I'm the producer, but you know. And you know what's, but what's interesting with him, I know this is not, we're not supposed to be talking about him, but it's fascinating. In Romania, where Transylvania and Wallachia and all that is, I don't know if it's Wallachia or Wallachia. I'm probably butchering it. Probably neither. Uh, he's like a folk hero. He's actually, they don't view him negatively because he stood the Ottomans up. He had a far smaller uh, military force and he was able to repel them. In fact, he was almost able to kill the Sultan Mehmet II, who was the, the, the king of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, they look, fondly upon his past deeds and view his uh how how cruel he was as necessary to organizing that region and making them forced to be reckoned okay that's the first time i've ever heard that i didn't know that at all yeah so if you will let's uh, let's go to the highgate vampire story here take it away highgate is a cemetery that and and bonnie and i were talking she's actually visited this cemetery in london Bonnie, you, do you want to share with everyone what you told me about where it is? And absolutely, um, I've been. It's uh, just a little bit north of uh, Camden Town, uh, part of London. So it's the first cemetery, I believe, uh, that was built outside the city of London proper. And there's some famous people buried there, like uh, Charles Marx. Oh, sorry, Charles Marx, Karl Marx, uh, George Eliot, Douglas Adams, Richard Marx, Richard Marx, uh, Groucho Marx. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Douglas Adams. And if I recall, people like leave pens and the, there's like a little spot on his, um, on his uh, tombstone where they leave pens, but it is a really creepy cemetery. Like it's very old and um, it's really, really cool to walk around. But even in the day, I was like a little bit freaked out by it. Definitely worth the visit though. If you take a look online at pictures of it, I've never been, but I did in my research go on. I wanted to see what I was talking about. It's like straight out of a horror film, overgrown, riddled with mausoleums and like old, old, old tombstones that are like sort of coming out of the ground and off to the side. Um, I believe there's catacombs as well underneath that, uh, that I'm assuming are, you know, date back hundreds of years. Uh, so a really creepy place. The area that it's in, Bonnie, maybe you can speak to this too, uh, from what I read, is a very posh area of London. Yeah, and I just double-checked the date. It was, it was uh, opened in 1839, so you're right, it's quite old. Um, which would explain mm -hmm. some of the some of the tombs and things being on an angle and, and very decrepit looking. And yeah, it's creepy. So this mystery begins to really unfold in the 1960s. 
At that time, there was a lot of vandalism occurring in the cemetery. Um, it was a place that kids talked about and were afraid of. You certainly never went in there at night. In the 1960s, some of these incidents start getting reported in the news. In 1967, two young girls uh, see a dead body rising from a grave, so literally clawing its way out of the ground and, uh, and pulling itself out. That same year, a teenager who lived nearby awoke one night with something cold clinging onto her hand and she wasn't able to quite see it, but it felt like uh, someone squeezing her, her hand very tightly to the point where it actually left a mark on her, uh, on her hand. It was badly bruised. So all of these little creepy things are happening. In 1969, there is a really strange event where they, a group going through the cemetery find uh, that a bunch of the graves have been desecrated and all the flowers off the nearby graves have been taken and arranged in these weird circular patterns and, and set up in a way that they point towards a one new grave that had just been dug and that grave was open. So this, it had been dug up and when they went Close to the opening, they saw that the coffin had been, part, the top of the coffin had been partially opened and someone had ran a stake, an iron stake through the lid of the coffin and into the chest of the corpse in the coffin. Through the lid of the coffin? Yes. Ugh. And what was weird about that was that why are you driving it through the lid of the coffin, but then also opening the coffin? Why not just drive it through the lid? Then, you know, people are speculating, well, maybe whatever was inside was trying to get out and that type of thing. Who was in the coffin? I don't know. Stop asking me questions. So the identity of who did this, they never ascertained that. That was never discovered. But there's all, so there's all these strange things happening and it's just something known in the neighborhood that you don't go by there at night, you don't walk through and that this place is haunted or just something bad exists there. In 1970, a man by the name of David Ferrant, his name's going to be important, writes a letter to the Hampstead and Highgate Express, which is a local newspaper, claiming that on December 24th, 1969, he glimpsed a gray figure in the cemetery as he was walking past, and that this gray figure was large and ethereal and seemed to sort of dissolve into one of the walls uh, of the cemetery. When he wrote that letter, it got a lot of buzz. On February 13th, a week later, the paper posted a bunch of replies to David's initial letter, and it was people describing the things that they had seen in the cemetery. The most common one was that of a man, a large man in a very tall hat, walking around the cemetery, so sort of fitting the description that David had given. Another was a woman in white walking around, gliding, a face glaring through the bars of the cemetery gates, figure wading into a pond, a, a, a pale gliding form, bells ringing, voices calling. And my favorite, <laughs> my favorite one was someone describing uh, a spectral cyclist. What? <laughs> I'm assuming a ghost on a bike. So in the last episode, we talked about a ghost ship. This is a ghost bike. 
So all these people are coming out and saying, you know, that they too have seen these weird things and they're unexplained and they're not sure to the point where the paper actually decides to do some digging themselves. In late February of 1970, they post a headline, uh, Does a Vampire Walk in Highgate? Now, one of those replies is, I'm going to, and I'll, I'll just sort of veer off the plot a little bit to explain a little bit more about one of the main characters of this story. So at this time, when the replies are coming in, is a man named Sean Manchester. And his letter is that this is not the work of ghosts, uh, that it is, in fact, uh, the work of a vampire, that all the things that have been happening that have been strange are the work of one vampire that's possibly the king of all the vampires. So, in a sense, uh, Dracula, although he doesn't necessarily name him such. Uh, at this time, too, I should point out that at that same time, they're discovering many animals found dead in the cemetery uh, with lacerations to their throat and their bodies completely drained of blood. Oh, this is getting good. This is getting really good. Yeah. And as well, uh, more like graves that de get desecrated and things like that. So Sean Manchester speaks up and says, this is not, this isn't just your regular ghost story. This is a real problem that we're actually being threatened right now. Uh, he is a self-proclaimed exorcist and vampire hunter and is apparently a bishop of uh, the mysterious old Catholic Church, which I knew nothing about prior to this. The old Catholic Church is, is kind of like they did their own schism in the 1880s, and uh, they were Catholics who broke off with the Catholic Church for a whole bunch of doctrinal things that I'm not going to get into, but they're like a branch of the Catholic Church that's probably more in line with the Anglicans. Now, apparently, he's a bishop of that church. This is the first time I've ever heard of the old Catholic Church. It was the first time I heard about it, and it's a thing. Is it spelled O-L-D-E? You know what? I think it, in one of the things I read, it actually was. This uh, story, you've got you got Manchester on one side, and then you've got this guy, other guy, David Ferrer, on the other. And he's another interesting guy. He um, is heavily involved in the occult. He claims, not not as like a, a Satanist or anything like that. In fact, he's anti-Satanist, and I'll get to that a little bit more about that in, in a few minutes. But he's really a kind of a wacky, out there kind of guy. He ran as the sole candidate for the Wicca Workers' Party, so he's not, he's a witch in the sense, uh, or, or I guess warlock in the sense, not in the, in the demonic sense, but in the actual pagan religion. I took in uh, my last year of university as an elective witchcraft. Did you ever take that, anyone? Did you guys take that? In the very first class, I, uh, we waited and waited. It was a huge class, like 300 people or more. I don't know. It was one of those big amphitheater things. It was a long day too, because we had, I think, three-hour theater design course from 8.30 to 11.30. And then from one to four, we had another fourth-year theory of the theatrical event, I think, or something like that. And then we had this class from seven to 10. And there was a small group of us that were together all day. So that first class, we show up. It's late. We're exhausted. And the teacher never shows up. And it turned out that she was in a car accident or something. Not seriously hurt, like a broken leg or something. But the class just never happened. The next week, we ended up going to a small pub 
just off campus, the Royal Oak, and at four o'clock after last theater class was done, and we got drunk, and we never made it to the, the class. The third week, we did show up again, but we had also gone to the Royal Oak, and we were drunk, but we did try to make it. We were being loud and got told. <laughs> it's the first time in my four years of theater that I was actually asked to leave a class. All that to say, I never went back to the class again, but I got a 93%. That's magic. <laughs> that's witchcraft. <laughs> See, that's the whole point of electives, right? Right. The midterm was was 40 multiple choice questions with 40%. The final exam was 60 multiple choice with 60%. I got the notes off someone, crammed, studied, and uh, and apparently I'm an expert in Wicca history, and I can't tell you really much of anything about it. You know, in um, in university, the only time I ever got thrown out of a class was when I got into a bitter, bitter argument with an older woman because I was university age, but she was older, obviously. She was like 45 or something, which is not old to me now, but to me, it was, it was to me then. And I got kicked out of class for arguing with her about a book called The Wide Sargasso Sea, which is the prequel to Jane Eyre. And we got into such a bitter argument that the teacher just said, you gotta, you gotta go. And we left, and I remember walking out into the corridor, and she went one way, and I went the other. And I actually needed to go the way she went, but I couldn't, so I actually went to the back of the building and waited, and then went the way she had gone, because it was the only way out of the building. Such a common thing, though, eh? Like, how many fights have started over Jane Eyre? And it's so sad. So this guy, and I just wanted to mention, too, about Farron uh, with his party, the platforms for that party, uh, he wanted free sex. Uh, nudity, so I guess everyone's nude in England. How is that going to work in the winter? Outlawing communism, which I don't get, because if you're called the Free or the Wicked Workers Party, that sounds to me like a left-leaning thing. But maybe he is. Maybe it's socialist and not communist. You know, when there's workers in the party, it usually leans toward communism. Yeah, you'd think. Uh, he wanted state-sanctioned brothels, but this is my favorite platform. He wanted to restore true power to the monarchy. He wanted to abolish uh, democracy and go back to maybe he knew something about uh, Queen Elizabeth that we don't. So the, the, these are the two main players. So there has been this this flurry of news activity on the the events that have been transpiring in the cemetery, and uh, these two guys sort of become uh, the two prominent voices on what's happening now. In August of 1970 things get a little darker than they had previously. A charred uh, and headless corpse is uh, discovered in the cemetery. It turned out it was a woman who had passed away 100 years prior, so it's not like it was a homicide. The police suspect it had been used in black magic, so there was evidence of some sort of ceremony being performed. The uh, Later that same month, the police arrest David Ferrand in that cemetery carrying a crucifix and a wooden stake, which is interesting because he's, remember the guy who's claiming it's ghosts. And in fact, he's on the record as saying that uh, Manchester is full of shit and that it's not the vampire, you know, the, the uh, Bram Stoker style vampire that they're dealing with. It's something much worse, but he's still caught with the crucifix and the wooden stake, the police arrest him for vandalism and for um, desecrating a corpse. So he's actually jailed 
for that. He later claims that he wasn't doing that, that the desecrations were the work of Satanists who were working against him. Manchester, later in that same month, uh, returns to uh, the cemetery and he, with the help of some companions, and uh, that includes a psychic, they force open uh, one of the vaults in the cemetery. And inside the vault, I don't know how they knew this, but they say that they found the coffin uh, belonging to a different vault inside the coffin and that they believed that the person in the coffin was a vampire. Uh, he was about to drive a stake into the corpse's chest when uh, one of his friends talked him out of it and instead they left garlic and incense in the tomb and departed. Now he says he later did some more detective work and that he did finally kill the Highgate vampire but not in the cemetery. He said it was he called it the house of Dracula and it, that was in Crouch's End which Stephen King wrote a short story about. So all of that uh, sort of happened. It was even with all the media hype, they did a, uh, it was Manchester claimed he was going to do a, like an exorcism in the, in the cemetery. And it was televised. ITV uh, ended up televising it. All these people came with stakes and crucifixes. The police had to be called and the whole thing didn't end up really happening i i can't imagine how that couldn't have worked it's just so feasible so there's more to this story which i, I so there's the 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 weird obviously something sinister was up whether it was supernatural or not i mean it's very explainable that human beings that were either sick or were trying to scare people or create a story were behind those acts the other but the interesting part sort of the second half of this story is the, the feud between Ferent and Manchester, which only concluded a few years ago when Ferent died. These guys hated each other beyond belief. So as, so the, there was that initial letter that Ferent wrote in and Manchester replied saying, ah, it's not ghosts, it's a vampire. And um, that was kind of like the, the, the inciting incident where they, they really didn't like each other. Uh, they both claimed that they could and would destroy uh, the entity that was terrorizing the community. Of course, Manchester says that he did do it in the end. The televised exorcism that Manchester was a part of, and that was in uh, March 13th, 1970, Farron got the media invited him on as well to be interviewed and to talk to him. And that apparently infuriated Manchester that his work was being muddied by this, this imposter, as he called him. After Ferent was jailed for the desecration of graves and all that, Manchester apparently only would really refer to him as a felon. <laughs> so he would never use his name. He would just kept referring to him as a, a felon and tried to sort of defame him that way. Both continued to write and talk about it for years after. They always tried to either downplay or just outright exclude the other from the narrative. Uh, Ferent presided over the British Psychic and Occult Society. Uh, Manchester ended up setting up the British Occult Society. So they have these two warring occult societies. In 1985, Manchester wrote The Highgate Vampire. In 1991, Farron wrote Beyond the Highgate Vampire. My favorite 
thing, though, uh, is that in 1973, they challenged each other to a magician's duel supposed to take place in a local park. And unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, the magician's duel never happened. But they did continue to trade uh, insults right through until Ferenc's death. There was an interesting article I read in Vice about this, where the head researcher of UFO magazine, Don Ecker, he's always been intrigued by the story. He doesn't buy either the vampire part, but he does think that the story is weird enough to warrant further attention. He actually did get to speak to Ferent shortly after he passed. Uh, liked Ferent, thought he was a pretty likable guy, pretty uh, self-deprecating, and but and but also got the sense from Ferent that he wasn't just trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, that he really genuinely believed what he was saying. He also tried to reach out to Manchester, but apparently Manchester is a complete dick and was extremely rude to him. And in fact, they ended up getting onto a war of words on the internet where they were trading insults back and forth. And uh, the, uh, Manchester does not want to talk about it, but still claims to be an active vampire hunter and uh, killing vampires in his spare time. So that is the story of the Highgate vampire. Can I ask you a question? No. Did the vampire ever kill anybody alive or just animals? Just animals. No one was ever killed except for that one. And, and, and in fact... So a lot of people saw things, but the only assault was that girl who said that something cold clung to her hand one night. Again, that could be there could be a lot of explanation for that. So that was it. That was the only human assault, and then everything else was rituals or animals being killed. Now I want to go to that cemetery, but you know what? I do too. I got to tell you, there's a movie in that, and not. I would do a movie about those two guys just duking it out over this. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many fascinating, and that's sort of the thing that I I discovered in reading. Like, there's all these really cool little stories that, are, that surround vampirism. And whether or not you believe in vampires is real, they're really actually quite interesting. Because, like, even, like, I, I read about Nosferatu and Max Schreck, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's a cursed movie, right? It was a cursed. It's a cursed movie. Max was. There were people that claimed that he himself uh, was a vampire. That is not true. And in fact, he sounds like he was a, a very quiet hermit type guy. But not. There's no evidence that he was evil or bad or hurt anybody. But the producer of that movie was heavily involved in the occult. And 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 sort of on the sinister side of things. Isn't there? A movie with Willem Dafoe about that. There is Shadow of the Vampire. Right. Absolutely. Love that movie. There was a, a Greek director in the 1950s who claimed that Nosferatu never used, they didn't know who the actor was. Of course, it's before IMDb and all that. We do know it's Max Schreck, but he claimed that he basically created a narrative that what we were seeing was less movie and more like almost like a documentary, that that creature was real. And some people have claimed that it wasn't Max Shrek that was in the makeup that they did. It was the actual count. Anyway, but it's interesting. All that stuff is very interesting. You know, I still think, I still think, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that Nosferatu vampire mm -hmm. is still the most terrifying of them all. I, I agree completely. I agree too. The only one that comes close is Gary Oldman in Dracula when he's all white 
and and he kind of looks like Nosferatu. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, and he's like a really, really ancient, old, white, extremely white skin with the long red nails and that weird that weird hairdo. That's the like though that to me, those are the two scariest. God, I hated that movie. I hated that. Keanu Reeves trying to do a British accent. Oh my god. Uh, Riley, that's his accent in all movies. <laughs> and I have to say this: I love Keanu Reeves. Well, he's the luckiest actor in the whole world. He is. He's got The Matrix under his belt, John Wick. He's got, and he's gotten these amazingly successful franchises without really having any great talent. Oh wait, did he do Speed Two? No, he didn't do Speed Two. He's just been in the right place at the right time. Did you know, by the way, that I just found out recently that John Wick was not the name of that movie? It was called something Revenge or something like that. But Keanu Reeves was doing the um, publicity circuit and kept calling it John Wick, so they had to rename it. Like so his character was always John Wick, and he forgot the name of the title. It had been called Scorn. That's it. Yes. Wow. You could go on a publicity circuit. And say, I'm in this new movie called Butter, and. <laughs> If, if, they got, if you did enough of it, they'd have to rename the movie Butter. It would be, mm-hmm. you'd have this power. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's so Keanu Reeves. Yeah, like he, I, I don't know. There's something so earnest about him. I enjoy watching him, especially if he's cast properly. Not all of his movies are great or good. So that's it for the Highgate Vampire, Riley. I hope that satisfied your yearning for the weird and uncanny. I actually love the feud part. I want to, that could be a really amazing movie. I agree. And you and I, and you and I could, could play it. I'd be Ferent and you'd be Manchester. Brilliant. I'll produce it. I knew I'd be the bitchy one. I knew it. I knew I'd be the, the dick. Yeah. <laughs> And you got to search for pictures of him. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Like, he's dressed in, like, the full bishop's garb and stuff like that. You know what he reminds me of a little bit is, do you remember Good Omens? And I know you read it because you lent me the book many years ago. He reminds me of the witch hunter. In reading about him, it really sounds like he, this is not for just publicity. Like, this is his life. This is what he does. And he's really earnest and very serious about it. And kind of chippy and angry because people doubt him, right? And laugh. I just checked out his picture. Like you said, it, it looks like um, like a masterpiece theater uh, costume. It's it's great. Uh, let's let's tell our viewers then. We our viewers. We don't have viewers. Um, our <laughs> listeners that will post a picture of him on the Facebook group, which we will be opening um, to coincide with episode one. So it should be open by now. Yeah, and so if you're looking to find us on Facebook, you can find our page, The Weird. Uh, and you'll also be able to find us on Twitter at The Weird Podcast. That's our Twitter handle. And we'll post all of our stuff there, and we'll post interesting pictures. And Riley likes to do drawings, and he'll post some of his drawings there. And for the last 25 years, Riley has almost exclusively been drawing mountains with a little house nestled at the foot of them and a pirate ship in the yard. Now we want people to visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and we want your ideas on episodes. I listen to a lot of podcasts and sometimes people can find and come up with the most obscure stories that we would never find on our own. So people out there, if there's a story near and dear to your heart that you think we should cover, uh, all that we ask is that it's some weird uncanny tale of our unexplained world. And uh, we'd be glad to do it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Because eventually uh, we're not terribly bright or creative and we'll need your help in uh, generating content for this show. Absolutely. So Dan, thank you. Bonnie, are you there? I'm, I'm here. Thank you uh, one and all for this week. Dan, great, great choice. I love the Highgate Vampire. And go to Highgate. Yeah. And so next week, uh, episode three, I'll be bringing something really, uh, really frightening to the table. So I can't wait to bring that to you. So until then, um, I love you all. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And I'm Riley. And I'm Dan. And where are you, Bonnie? Oh, I'm I'm Bonnie. I'm here. (laughs) There she is. And we'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Good night, everybody. That's magic. That's witchcraft. That's magic. That's witchcraft. That's magic. That's witchcraft. That's magic. That's witchcraft. That's magic.